You are listening to the Missio Tempe podcast. We are a church of missional communities, living as a family of missionary servants for the good of our city. For more information about our church, visit missiotempe.com. We hope this teaching encourages and challenges you to faithfully take up your role in the Missio Day. If you didn't gather with us last week, I'll fill you in on where, we're, where we've been going as a church. We started a new series last week called Letters to the Church, which is the seven letters in the book of Revelation, chapter 1 and 2. Now, don't worry. We're not going to go to the end of Revelation and make sense of all the imagery and symbols. You can do that in a Bible study or another time. But those first couple of chapters outline seven letters Jesus, in a sense, writes to the churches scattered across the empire, giving them encouragement, but also warning of what it looks like to be God's people in their time and place. The season of Lent really is a season of returning. It's a season of warning where any good, like any good parent who gives their child promises, commands, and also warnings, Jesus does that to us as well. But the good news of Revelation chapter 1, 2, and 3 is his warning comes not with condemnation or shame, but it comes with Jesus' right hand on your shoulder. As he puts his right hand on the shoulder of the Apostle John in 1.18 and says, Do not be afraid. I am the first and the last. And so as we hear hard words from Jesus over the next six weeks, we hear those words not through that lens of condemnation and shame, but we hear it through the lens of Jesus' right hand on our shoulder, calling us back to himself. That's the vision. That's where, we've been, that's where we're going to be going. And so last week we looked at the city of Ephesus, and Jesus had some strong words for Ephesus saying, hey, you have good works, or you've done hard work, good deeds, and, per- and you've had perseverance, yet I have this against you. You've forgotten your first love. Your motivation of your heart and why you're participating in these things is sideways. Maybe you're growing resentful or bitter or frustrated because something in the operation of your heart is off. And I'm calling you to return because if you don't, I will remove your lampstand. The lampstand was a picture of the church's presence that was being threatened to be removed because of their unfaithfulness. That outwardly they were doing all the right things, but inwardly their hearts were sideways. We can get that way too. This week we're looking at the letter to the church in Smyrna. Now, these are circular letters. If you had a map, in a sense, the letter goes like the, each letter kind of goes from city to city in a circle. And Smyrna was the next city. It was about 50 miles down from Ephesus. And it's only four verses. And to be really honest, which is not like me, all week I've been going back and forth on what to do with this sermon, what to do with these four verses. Now, don't worry, I have some things prepared because I'm a preparer. This isn't just me going off the cuff up here. That would be kind of dangerous in my mind, at least personally. Others are really good at it. But what do, what do we do with these four verses? What do we do? And I've been wrestling all week. We can go back and forth. And really, I'm almost, I've been wondering this morning if it's really the simple obedience is being asked of us here, of these four verses. As we listen into this conversation between Jesus and Smyrna, maybe it's just, it really is simple obedience Jesus is asking for us. But I want to kind of invite you into the process this morning. I have some, I think, vision of maybe what this pastor might be saying to us as a congregation. But I'd like to hear from you too, because our vision is that we've been given a priesthood of all believers, not just the pastor who's up in the front that hears from God, but all of us who've been given the Holy Spirit. And as we walk attentive to his word and to his voice, we actually hear from God too. And so right now I'm going to read the passage. It's four verses, like I said, and I'm going to invite you to turn some with some people around you and just begin to talk and answer the simple question. 
what about this letter to Smyrna might have implications for us as a church? What are the words that Jesus is saying to this church 2,000 years ago? What, how might it instruct us as the church now, our church, Missio Dei Tempe? Let me give you some context of what the city was about. Like I said, it was 50 miles down from Ephesus. Smyrna was known as the most beautiful of these seven cities. It had all these great symbols of power and the empire, of stadiums and, and places of worship. And in the city, it had gone through kind of a, a, a U-curve where it had kind of been destroyed in many ways and then rebuilt. And um, the city was very wealthy, most people believe. It was a port town, a port city, maybe like the city of Seattle would be a good comparison uh, in some ways to an American city. And here, this wealthy port city, beautiful city, Jesus instructs this small, destitute, poor, suffering church living as faithful missionary servants in this place that God has them. What might he say to us as well? Let me read these verses from uh, Revelation chapter 2, verses 8 through 11. Revelation chapter 2, verses 8 through 11. I'm going to read it two times, and then I'm going to have you turn to some people around you and think and pray, what might Jesus be saying to us this Lenten season? Revelation 2, 8 through 11. It says to the angel of the church in Smyrna, write, These are the words of him who is the first and the last, who died and came to life again. I know your afflictions and your poverty, yet you are rich. Some people believe it's a play on words here. They weren't actually physically or materially rich, but they were rich in Christ. Some others believe, no, they maybe were wealthy as well. I know about the slander of those who say they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. Some people, uh, commentators, believe with this idea of slander happening where these synagogues are slandering these little churches, uh, that they were like informants to the empire. They were telling of who were Christians so they can be rounded up and put into prison. Basically, they're facing slander from people that also believe in this God, but maybe not in Jesus as the Son of God. Verse 10, do not be afraid of what you're about to suffer. I tell you, the devil will put some of you in prison to test you, and you will suffer persecution for 10 days. The number 10 is used all throughout Revelation. Again, it could be uh, that it's actually 10 days they were going to suffer and being put into prison, but also it might just represent a period of time. Hey, you're going to be for a period of time in prison, but that's nothing in light of eternity. Be faithful even to the point of death, and I will give you life as your victor's crown, or wreath is another way to translate that word. Whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. The one who is victorious will not be hurt at all by the second death. Here referring to the second death is the judgment day of Christ when he returns and restores and redeems his world and judges his world to bring about his just vision of what his world was made to be. So I've given you a bunch of context to some of the words. Let me just read it all the way through one more time, and then you can turn to your neighbor. To the angel of the church in Smyrna write, These are the words of him who is the first and the last, who died and came to life again. I know your afflictions and your poverty, yet you are rich. I know about the slander of those who say they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. Do not be afraid of what you're about to suffer. I tell you, the devil will put some of you in prison to test you, and you will suffer persecution for ten days. Be faithful, even to the point of death, 
and I'll give you life as your victor's crown. Whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. The one who is victorious will not be hurt at all by the second death. This is God's word. Would you turn to your neighbors, a couple of people around you, maybe you sit in silence for a moment, but as we talked about last week, these letters written to this particular place and people in this particular time also have implications for us as the church 2,000 years later, as Jesus is also instructing us. These weren't written to us, but they are for us. So would you turn to some people around you, how might this, these four verses instruct and shape us as a congregation in our time and place for Missio Dei Tempe? Ready, set, go. All right, I'm going to call you back if you want to grab your seat. I'd love to hear from a couple different people if you'd be willing to share maybe an insight or a word that you saw from this passage, how it might instruct us as people in this time and place as followers of Jesus. What do you guys think? What did you see? Ricky, I heard you had some really good thoughts over there. Just give, can, a, just give a short version. Okay, <laughs> short version. Uh, the bishop of Smyrna was Polycarp. He was a church father. I just recently read this like two or three days ago, which is weird because I didn't know this was coming up because I don't read ahead. Um, basically, uh, here, I don't want to talk. I, I use my hand too much. Does it? Yeah, for the podcast. Come on, man. All right, okay. Um, hearing my own voice is not fun. So basically, the bishop of Smyrna, Polycarp, had a dream. He was running from the people in Smyrna that were trying to persecute the church, and he was trying to get away. And he had a dream. He was up praying, um, trying to f- figure out what he wants to do. And he's, his pillow, he felt like his pillow was lit on fire. And he took that as a sign that he was going to be burned alive. And so he was like, okay. And he went to the next house, and they found him at the next house. He was basically like, what God has ordained, he's ordained. And they... Uh, took him in, questioned him, did all this crazy stuff. And the, the miraculous thing in the, the letters called the martyrdom of Polycarp is he was, when he was burned alive, he, they say it was in a miraculous martyrdom because there was a wreath or a crown of fire surrounding him that was stopping him from being burned, which is interesting in this passage where it says that you'll be crowned or like a wreath of, uh, of life. What does it say? Wreath of crown of life. Yeah. And so, they actually had to stab him to kill him because the fire was not killing him. And so there's a sense in which like this miraculous death um, was kind of like it. It was like a fulfillment of this prophecy that, that Jesus was kind of giving them. Um, and also that was as far as the letter is written, it says that they stopped persecuting the church in Smyrna after he was crucified or after he was uh, martyred. So I think that was pretty cool. Thanks for sharing, Ricky. If you guys want to name one of your kids Polycarp, that'd be a good, uh... yeah, what a vision. 50 years after this letter for Polycarp, the Bishop of Smyrna, faced great persecution. He has this quote. I'll read it now here. Thanks for setting me up, Ricky. He says, as, as he was being uh, killed for the sake of Christ, he says, for 86 years, I have served Jesus Christ. And he has never abandoned me. How could I curse my blessed King and Savior? 
He's never abandoned me. What else? What else came from this passage as you were, as you were exploring its implications for us? Anybody else want to share? Yes, Chris. Don't go anywhere. I just have a question. I'm not as smart as Ricky, so I just have a question for you. It seemed like when I was reading it, or when you were reading it, at first it seems like it's like the secular Romans who are persecuting them, but it's got that thing about like it feels like the more like religious people that who say they're Jews but they're like. So which one, which one, who is persecuting them? How that work? Thanks, Chris. I appreciate you uh, setting me up with that really easy question. <laughs> I think the really challenging piece of this, which is true of our church and our people today, is persecution or slander was coming from both inside and outside of the church. I don't know if you guys recognize this, but over the last uh, two to three years, the church in the West, the American church, has slandered one another in disproportional ways. Like, it's, it's unbelievable. Uh, people that would maybe even claim the same faith, even in this case, there's a little bit of a difference, right, between those who are Jews, maybe didn't see Jesus as the Messiah, but slander from within the church was just as much of a threat in this moment as the empire at large, who is also trying to persecute and snuff out these Christian communities. Maybe that's a warning in some ways for us of both, yeah, we can be concerned about what's out there, that could come and hurt and persecute us or in suffering, but also from within, we can hurt one another pretty deeply. Anybody else? Yeah, Goog. His real name's not Goog, but that's... Um, we had uh, an interesting discussion around, there was like, we aren't really persecuted in the same way, um, so there's like, a, how does this actually relate? Um, someone brought up social persecution, which I think is a real thing. Um, but I think in both of those cases, it's tough when, um, like thinking through why they are persecuted of those who are persecuted, whether from inside or outside, are being persecuted because they're like fully devoting themselves to the way of Jesus and allowing Jesus to shape all things. And then for me, it was like a, I'm looking at myself over the last weeks, months, and realizing like not much of Jesus is shaping who I am and what I'm doing and how I'm choosing to think about what we have, what we're trying to improve, like all that kind of stuff. And so persecution, like the endurance piece is coming from the persecution around looking different to everybody who's not choosing to actively have Jesus shape everything that they're doing. This is so great when we do this because each time I feel like I get set up in the best way of some of the same things that I think the Lord had put on my own heart as I was preparing this week. Because that was my wrestling this whole week. In the West, at least, we might not face in the same way what's happening here. I'm not, I'm not going to bed each night worried that tomorrow I might be thrown into one of America's private prisons for the, the faith I have in Christ and how it's shaped my life. But there is still threats and temptations and tests on the church in our time. It just looks different. I have this experience often where someone finds out you're a Christian, especially if you're a pastor, but if you're a Christian, and the response now is, oh, that's nice. Like, in a sense, they're commenting on, like, you have a toy poodle or something in front of you. Oh, that's nice. That's really, that's really cute that you have that, that poodle right there. 
It's a nice part of your life. Let's move on to the next thing. We may not be in danger of being thrown into one of the private prisons of America because of our faith, but we are in danger of having our faith privatized. That our faith and our allegiance to Christ becomes a personal preference among many in a consumer culture, and over time we subtly compromise our allegiance to Christ in all of life through a bunch of small decisions we make so that our faith becomes domesticated and doesn't actually have implications for all of life, like a frog in boiling water not knowing it's too late, like a lion that's coerced into believing that they belong in a cage in the zoo. We have the chance, the ability, the, the test, the temptation to have our faith be domesticated and not have Jesus be uh, having allegiance over all of our life, over every dimension, every area, from our work to our home, to our neighborhoods, to how we spend our time, to our witness to our neighbors and how we talk about Christ, we can domesticate and make it just a personal preference among many that it gets reduced to. So yes, maybe it's not prison tomorrow, but in many ways we're tempted to privatize our faith to make it one of many options in our culture instead of the orienting, centering vision for all of life that Jesus has given us. And that will come with great cost when you begin to push against those idols and those compromises, compromises of our time. I want to talk a little bit about also suffering in this passage. No one has brought that up yet because you don't want to talk about suffering. That sounds bad. But suffering is a reality, whether your faith is domesticated and privatized or if it is being put in private prisons. Some good music playing in the back here. Suffering. I would love to talk about the three approaches that we often take with suffering. Uh, temptations you might have shaped by other stories of our culture and not the story of scripture. The first approach is this. It's the Buddhism approach or the Buddhist approach. The Buddhist approach is that as Buddha saw the suffering of the world and he came out of his palace, he said to get rid of suffering, we need to extinguish desire. That desire is the root of all suffering. So if we can extinguish desire and get rid of our attachments to the world, we will uh, we'll find freedom from suffering. Maybe this is you. You think about suffering that you face either as a Christian or just suffering in God's broken world. How do I get rid of and extinguish the desire so that I might remove myself from suffering? The second one is the more the Hinduist or the karma approach, that suffering is intricately tied to your past performance or morality. You get what you deserve. It's intricately tied. And so even with the idea of Hinduism or karma is you'll be reincarnated into a better or worse situation based on your performance in the past life. You get what you deserve. You have what's coming for you. Maybe this could be your approach to suffering shaped by that story. The last one is maybe most close to home for us. And actually, let me back up for a second. You know that story in the Gospels where the, the disciples see a blind man and they tell Jesus, who sinned, this man or his father? Like they're taking this different approach to suffering. And Jesus responds like, neither, but for the sake of the glory of God being displayed in this person's life. The third approach is, this, is the secularist approach, the culture that we swim in. And suffering in this culture, in this moment, is meaningless has no meaning. All you can do with suffering is try to avoid it 
through comfort. You can try to fix it through a life hack. Or you can try to overcome it heroically as an individual and triumph over it so that you have a personal story of triumphism over whatever suffering you're facing. But it has no meaning. It's more shaped by survival of the fittest. Don't try to make sense of it. It's just something that happens in this disordered world that we live in. I want you to turn to somebody around you. And real quick, as you think about those three options, if, I know there's a, there's a fourth option in the way of Jesus, but which one is your default as you think about your own experience of suffering? Is it shaped by extinguishing desire? Like if I can just remove things from my life, then I'll remove suffering. Is it shaped by you get what you deserve? You know how you tell if you're that one when something bad happens to you? If your first response is like, what did I do the last couple of weeks to deserve this? Or that third one, like, I need to find a life hack to fix it, or I need to avoid it through comfort, or I need to heroically endure it by myself so I can tell a success story on Instagram later of how I came through my suffering. Which one for you? Turn to the person next to you. Ready, set, go. Whether you uh, take one of these three approaches or you have a favorite fourth option, all of us have different coping mechanisms to deal with the suffering we face, whether because we're following Christ or because we live in a broken world or sometimes even for the consequences of our own sin. We find ways to avoid or fix or, you know what, we just get what we deserve. That's our default. Or, well, if I could just get rid of my attachments and my desires and I will avoid suffering in some way. But suffering is inevitable. You haven't experienced it in some way yet. You will. Because we live in a world that's been distorted and broken by sin. That Jesus is on a mission to redeem and make new, including us. But we live in the in-between time. It's hard to make sense of suffering. I don't have all the answers for you, to be honest. If someone does, they probably... uh, They're more confident in their own ability than actually to make sense of what happens in our lives. But I do know this. This is the hope of the passage. Jesus says at the very beginning, did you hear that? I think he says it a couple different times in the letters. I am the first and the last. The first and the last. I want you to think of, uh, of a movie director. Someone who puts together films to be displayed on screen. Think of a director who also wrote the script, which happens sometimes. You have this director that has this vision for a movie, and he also has written the script uh, that he's going to now build a team, assemble a team of cast, uh, of characters, and different people to work behind the scenes to make this movie a reality. And he knows the script. And then they set on this long journey of seeing this movie come to fruition, and they go scene by scene. He's making the different characters have different arc of their lives. And even in the moments of making the movie where the characters are experiencing great pain and despair, the director knows where the story is heading. He's written the script. He's directing the movie. He's going scene by scene, taking even loose ends of different parts of the plot that need to be tied. And, okay, we need to put this scene here, this scene here, so that because I know where the story is ending, I know where it's going. And how I'm going to bring resolution and resolve. But imagine also not just the director is directing the the film and has written the script, but he also then takes his place in the movie. 
He actually takes his place as one of the characters that actually comes into the story to pull together all the loose ends of the plot, to heal and restore relationships, to make sense of the suffering and brokenness that the different characters are experiencing. Because again, he is the first and the last. And just this is a simple picture of even how a movie is made. Gives us maybe a small glimpse of our king who is the first and last, who is directing every part of human history, is going scene by scene. He's written the script. But not only that, he enters into the suffering of the world that his characters have experienced, to walk with them, to be among them, to bring resolution to the story. And if you're going to face suffering well, you have to remember what story you're a part of because an argument won't do. Francis Spufford says this, We don't have an argument that solves the problems of a cruel world, but we have a story. We have a story. I know in this congregation, maybe not all because of uh, your faith in Jesus Christ and your allegiance to him, but there is great suffering happening. There are people that are experiencing all sorts of things of God's broken world. And often when you're in suffering, you can't really take a good argument doesn't work. You need a better story. You need to know that the king of the universe isn't just writing the story and the script, but he actually enters in with you. He's the good shepherd who comes along you in the valleys of the shadow of death. That's where I want to end today. Not with some grand resolution of how to make sense of every part. Maybe like you as we end today, you just need to hear these words. It's from a story of Jesus and his disciples in the gospel of John. It says that after he gave them that you need to eat my flesh and drink my blood, which would be really weird to hear, right, if you were a disciple. It said many disciples left Jesus. They left. And Jesus turns to the 12 and he says, are you going to leave too? And do you remember what they say? Peter, who's so bold and says really foolish things, but says some really good stuff too. He says, where else shall we go? You alone have the words of eternal life. Whatever you face this week, whatever suffering you're enduring and walking through, not trying to avoid or fix or to just dismiss, maybe you just are at that place of where else shall we go? You alone, Lord, have the words of eternal life. I'm going to trust you. I'm going to continue to walk with you in this Lenten season. I'm going to invite Jason and Melinda to come to the front. One of the ways to orient our hearts as we, at, we offer that simple prayer, where else shall we go, is through song. We're going to sing uh, one last song. We, we're going to sing it each of the next six weeks at the end of our service. And this is just going to be a time of response. Would this response be as we sing this new song, new wine? Would it be a way for you to orient your hearts? Where else shall we go, Lord? You alone have the words of eternal life as we walk through a myriad of different sufferings and pains in God's broken